We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. This week on our show, we have who I believe to be the newest Grandmaster-elect of the United States. He is 21 years old. He just got his third GM norm down in Charlotte. He is approximately the 27th highest rated player in the U.S., also a recent college graduate. He's got degrees in economics and math from BYU, uh, and he is a member of the San Diego Surfers of the Pro Chess League. So GM-elect Michael Brown, thank you for joining us. You should write a biography for me. That was very good. Thank you. I'm available. <laughs> um, so I, as I was just telling you before we started recording, I mean, I, I follow chess pretty closely here in the U.S. as uh, both an enthusiast and it being sort of part of my job here as a podcast host. So I, I see, I've mm-hmm. seen your name come up in the Pro Chess League, and I know you've been uh, 
been a, an ascending young player for a while, but then I saw that you got your third norm, and I saw this post that got shared a few times on Facebook thanking everyone, and uh, it, it tickled my heart, so I thought that now would be a good time to have you on the show. I appreciate it. I mean, it's it's been a long journey, so um, uh, there's a lot of people to thank, and so the the post, I don't think it quite did justice anyway, but I tried. Yeah, well, I think you did a good job, and and we'll get to some of the people who've been instrumental in in your ascension. But generally, when someone's coming off of a, a tournament like that, and it's still relatively fresh in their mind, uh, I like to get a little recap. So you just got your third norm down in Charlotte. Can you tell mm-hmm. us about that experience? Sure. So, um, fun fact about me: I I would I came down to Charlotte, I think North Carolina, about six times over the past two or three years. And almost every time, I got six out of nine. And uh, six out of nine was always a half point off from the norm. So I always felt like Charlotte was kind of my cursed city, where I would (laughs) always get just that close, but not quite there. So this time around, um, the tournament started off well. I got two wins with White in the first three rounds. So getting plus two out of three rounds is very good. Um, Then... I had a couple draws in rounds four and five against players where I was actually losing uh, both of the games, but managed to find some uh, fortresses to hold the difficult positions. And um, that was something that I really liked about my play was that despite, you know, not always playing my best games because it's a nine round tournament, you're going to have a bad game uh, now and then that I was still able to hold tough and, and show some resilience to make it difficult for my opponents to, find the wins and luckily for me it just happened that they didn't find it i feel like with grandmaster norms you kind of need a little bit of luck uh to to make it sometimes because when you're playing the group of players i was playing where everyone was at least international master and there was only one fide master but he has uh, gary shanker but he has five or six i am norms something like that everyone's good so you do need uh, a little bit of things to go your way so luckily this tournament I had those wins in the early rounds. I had a win in round six with the black pieces. And then after drawing the top two seeds of the tournament, I had to win my last round against actually uh, Gary Shankar. Uh, And the game was extremely tense. He decided just to play an opening that he never played before. So there went all my prep out the window. But uh, it was a it was a crazy fight. Uh, I tried to make it as unbalanced as possible. Unfortunately, you know, if I don't play well with the imbalances, then I, I could get a bad position. That's what happened. In fact, I was completely lost at one point. But what I did have in that game was very good time management. So despite having a completely losing position, I was up quite a bit of time. My opponent, Gary, was getting low in a very complicated position. He missed some winning ideas. And then all of a sudden, a couple moves later, he had allowed me to consolidate and now he was low on time and not quite winning. And so I was able to turn it around and slowly, but surely my advantage got bigger and bigger. I took some risks that game, but eventually got the win. And, uh, so that was, that was, uh, something that I I was really fond of because I had had many games, uh, where I needed to win my last round to make the Grandmaster norm, and so many times I had just missed it. I had been pushing for four hours, then I, I missed something and I drew, and this was kind of the common pattern for me for the past year and a half. But at least one time, just one time, I needed to go my way, and so this was that one time. 
And when you're playing with sort of heightened stakes, I mean, you've been working for the, for this achievement your whole career, um, or so. How 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 hard is it to block out uh, the goal you're seeking and the fact that this is the game uh, as compared to just a sort of regular tournament game? Right. I'll say in the beginning that when I started going for Grandmaster Norms, it was it was very hard to to block this out. Uh, but after a while, my rating actually crossed 2,500 when I got my first Grandmaster Norm. And so to me, it felt like, at least with the Norms, all you need is a couple good tournament performances. You don't need to have a very, con- you don't need to be like this super consistent player who's always doing well in every tournament. I'd already gotten that requirement. So, and it was helpful that a lot of the people I trained with, they would always comment how they always thought I was a Grandmaster and uh, just not a name yet, and so I thought, okay, you know, I just I just keep up what I'm doing, and and that's enough. So, and in this last round, uh, to me, I think what really made a difference was that I went into the last round with the attitude that a draw and a loss, it was the same for me. And usually, the pressure is like I don't want to lose. That's one of the big problems about chess is everybody hates losing. But when it comes to the norms, it was actually kind of a blessing disguise because. I just figured if I lose, it's the same thing to me. I don't care. Um, so to me, I just played as, as I said, as crazy and balanced as I could. And in some other games, I might have held back and not take as many risks. But here, I think I've got kind of used to the pressure too. Is that so many times I've had to play for the Grandmaster Norm that eventually it's like it's not a big deal anymore. It's just time to sit down and play and treat it like a regular tournament game. And with you mentioned. Um that you felt like time management was a strength in this game. Do you think that the fact that you weren't really worried about losing as compared to drawing, did that help with your time management? Um, I will say absolutely. Uh, it Usually I'm actually a pretty conservative player with my time. I like to take my time and try to find the best moves if I can and make it as difficult as I can for my opponents, obviously. Uh, but in this case, I thought, you know, since I already kind of have a feeling for what the plans are, I don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about the specifics of whether this plan works in such a chess position. I just play the plan. And since I'm playing for a loss or draw, even if I play fast and it turns out I make a mistake, um, at least I'll have some time on my edge at the end. And the thing, too, is that when I was actually a FIDE master, international master, playing these grand masters, there are many games where I would have the upper hand against these guys. But then my time would be very low, and they would take full advantage of that, and they would muddy up the position, and all of a sudden it got very difficult, and I'd make some mistakes. I'd end up either you know giving up the draw or even losing the game. So in a way, I had some very bad experiences with uh, grandmasters using my lack of time, um, control, my lack of you know effectively using my time to get results that weren't deserved, specifically based on the position. Can, can so, you think of any in particular, any that really sting? Um, it's been a while. I've been kind of at this level for a while now, but uh, let me let me uh, think about that just for a sec. Okay, because we can come back to that if you want. And one, one thing I noticed okay. in, in, in going through your tournament history is uh, even though I think of you as like a, a young active player, I know that you've been in college the last few the last mm-hmm. few years. Um, you actually haven't, uh, aside from the Pro Chess League, which we'll also mm-hmm. talk about, you haven't been playing all that many tournaments. 
Um, no. So how do you stay sharp? Uh, so when I got to school, I actually wasn't sure about how I was going to stay sharp either. But I had a couple people I knew back in Southern California, part of the community that I knew were international masters aspiring to become grandmasters just like me. And so I decided to give them a call and say, hey, if you think it's possible, I'd like to train with you online. I know that maybe it's, you know, you're, you're teaching or whatever, but if we could just train for maybe an hour or so, just kind of get, get some ideas out there and talk about the game then that would keep my interest in the game. And I think that actually really helped because not only did I start that way, I started to add more training partners as school went on. And so So having them, yeah, I was going to say just having them just gave, gave me someone else to banter with for these chess ideas. And it gave me reason to stick, stay with the modern chess and follow it more closely. And also a reason to study chess, studying chess by yourself takes a lot of discipline and i will say i'm not the the most disciplined studier when i'm just by myself but when i'm with people that i know that are also at my same level i'm challenged to you know keep up with everything keep my own knowledge up and so i think that really helped me while i was in school okay so a a couple follow-ups on that i don't know if you want Mm -hmm. to reveal your training partners or keep it private due to like opening you know opening stuff but my main question is um Mm -hmm. what kind of stuff do you guys look at and how do you come up with the material yeah so that's a very good question it ranges based on the training partners um some of my training partners i'll mention i'll mention one here because he he and i um we've been training for a long time his name is keaton kira He's an international master from, uh, he's living in San Diego right now. Yeah. Manager of the surfers, right? That's right. The manager of the surfers. So that that might've given me the end. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, and, you know, any detectives listening might've guessed that one anyway, but go, but go on. Right. Uh, but he was actually the first training partner I had. Uh, and we had actually met at the 2015 Southern California championship where I, I met for the first time we played, I won the game and, he, I was just a FIDE master back then, but he was very impressed, and he, he said, let's let's train together. I want to like learn more about how you approach chess and vice versa. And so at, at, at first, I think we really just started going over openings, just kind of different opening ideas that were happening. Uh, but mainly what we also did was we played a lot of training games. So we just trained in different things we, were tr- we wanted to stick. Maybe we wanted to try out a new opening. And so we just played a quick rapid or blitz game in this opening to see how we're feeling. And sometimes uh, we, we would just go over openings without even playing a game just to kind of banter about ideas. But some of my other training partners, uh, I did try to focus maybe on more problem solving, doing some tactics, some calculation ideas, how to attack. And so luckily I have about... I would say I sat four or five regular training partners over my college career. And so with each of them, the differences, there were differences in the way we trained, but uh, I would say the main things to focus on were openings, training games, and then, you know, the tactics and puzzles, that kind of stuff. And so would this be like a Skype group or you train with different people separately or some combination of the two? Uh, very rarely would I do more than one person at a time just because it's hard to get so many people involved at the same call at the same time. 
And as a podcast was, host, I can definitely relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> right. And the other thing too is a lot of these chess players I met that I trained with, I actually met during college at tournaments that I went to. So when I was a freshman, I actually went to uh, some tournaments in Dallas. And what I noticed about Dallas is there's a lot of college-aged chess players around my strength that I haven't actually hadn't actually like known before. I didn't know that there's this vibrant community of people who were striving just like me to make the Grandmaster title were and they were playing at, at these same tournaments. UTD students or even beyond that? No, I think it was actually non-UTD students mainly. It was actually people that would come to UTD to play that, you know, they didn't have to just they weren't just right there. They actually had to travel and they huh. seemed very dedicated. So I actually met um, some of my training partners like that. I'll, I'll just mention another one. Uh, this is a Canadian international master who I met at a Dallas tournament. In fact, he and I roomed kind of randomly there and became pretty good friends. His name is Sham Tavandaran. He actually plays for the Montreal Chess Bras, the Pro Chess League, and he's also an inspiring international master like me. You mean like Grandmaster? Uh, now it's a, I have to, I have to forget that I no longer inspiring international master, <laughs> right? Yeah, you know? And so when I say that, I just feel like it's been two years, but he and I met at a Dallas tournament. And then he was another guy who I noticed he was actually a little bit older than me. And that actually shocked me. He was working full time and yet he was coming to these tournaments. And, um, so I was actually very inspired by like his dedication to the game, despite all the other, you know, things that he had going on. Cause I thought school was bad then all of a sudden he's got almost full-time work. Uh, and so I thought, okay, if you can, if you can go to these tournaments and train, you know, once every week, why can't I, you know, doing college? So I think just, it was those kinds of experiences and meeting those kind of people that I think really helped me because that was, those were good places to meet the type of people who I would train with later on. That makes sense. And since you were training with more than one person, did it, did it amount to more than one session per week or like how often did, did these sessions average out to, Sure. I think uh, there were some on on times where I would train two or three sessions a week, and there were other times where I wouldn't train at all. I mean, it kind of went up and down with the seasons and school especially. Sometimes I have to call off training sessions because I had maybe like a project at school that just I just need to focus on that. But I would say on average, I think once a week or maybe once every two weeks would be kind of the norm. Uh, just based on, you know, there are some very long stretches of where I just couldn't train at all just because of the business of school. In fact, my last semester of college, I didn't play any chess tournaments because I was very focused on job hunting and trying to get my career figured out at the same time. So that took me away from chess for a little bit, but I still train, I'd say again, once every two weeks. And so that still kept me sh- sharp enough. Okay. Yeah. And you graduated uh, just a couple months ago. Is that right? I did. I graduated uh, December twenty first, twenty eighteen. Okay, and um, and what's what's your next step? Have you figured that out yet? So I'm actually going to be moving out to Washington D.C. in a month, or not in a month, in I would say three weeks or so, to start a job as an economic consultant. You know, when you say the economics and math majors, economic consultant is actually a pretty good mix of those two. So I'll be headed out to D.C. to a firm called Bates White. And uh, I'll be starting there, you know, at the end of the month. So I'm really excited for that. Also, a little nervous because it's a full-time role. And uh, I will say that getting the Grandmaster Norm when I did, extremely, uh, (laughs) it was 
very good time to get it because, man, if I had not gotten it here, I would have had to probably find some time during my job to play, and ugh, that's tough. So, Yeah, well, congratulations on the job, first of all. Well, thank you. And yeah, definitely good timing. I mean, uh, just speaking from from my experience, not not playing on your level, but uh, finding some time to compete, I think would would not if you decide to make it a priority. It's it's definitely it's not impossible when you're working full time. Just don't have kids. Is, is uh, my advice. Uh, I'm 21. I, could, I, could, I probably have some years ahead. Good, good. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah, obviously in due time is a life experience I recommend, but not, it doesn't, won't, won't be good for your chess. Um, <laughs> um, so do, are, do you think you'll do any coaching or are you just going to focus on your work for the time being? That's actually a question I'm pondering uh, right now. The thing is, I don't know the DC community very well at the moment. What I'm going to do is I'm going to try to arrive early and maybe go to a couple chess clubs, scout out the kind of players that are there the kind of people who might be interested in, in coaching or whatnot and so we'll see i mean it's it's not something i've done a lot in the past to be honest i've really focused on my competitive chess and so coaching was something that always took a back seat there but I, that might be something worthwhile considering when i you know start the full-time job because playing competitive chess can be a lot harder then yeah, and you can if you find dedicated young students, it's sort of a you know, um, it's a way that you can still live a bit vicariously through through a student who's who's really pushing hard to improve, even if you don't have the time to do it yourself. Um, it's, and, it's, yeah. and I was just gonna say, like, you're. I saw you've done a couple YouTube videos, and I would definitely encourage you. You're you're very good at um, explaining ideas. Uh, so you encourage me to get on there more, huh? <laughs> well, if you have the time, or at least to to do teaching, I'm just saying. You're, yeah. however, you decide to pursue it. You're uh, you're good at explaining ideas, and uh, one of the one of the videos I saw was your your video highlighting um beating Yu Yang Yi with, mm-hmm. with the with the black pieces, no less. Just a yeah. sort of a mind boggling achievement. So I'll uh, I'll link to the the whole video in the show description, but, but why don't you, um, if you could tell our listeners just sort of the, the cliff notes version of, of what this experience was like. Sure. So Yu Yang Yi was the first full super grandmaster I played. And, uh, it was at Chicago open 2016 round two. I had played down the first round and one, and I expected, you know, I'd probably play down again round two and the parents come in and there's Yu Yang Yi. Um, Actually, and, if I could just jump in for a second, just for oh, yeah. for any listener who doesn't know, Yu Yang Yi is currently number twelve in the world. He was top twenty even then, uh, one mm-hmm. of China's best players. So just an absolute monster. Uh, uh, but, but anyway, sorry, go on. So, I mean, yes, I I actually had a roommate, uh, Grandmaster Yaroslav Zherobuk, who who was staying with us at the time, and I remember he even expressed some trepidation over Yu Yang Yi's participation in the tournament right yeah i mean i was thinking like and i i, I respect yara he's a very strong grandmaster i think he's going for a uh, mba or something right now at st louis university but i remember like when i heard that from like a guy like yara i thought oh geez uh, what's what's going to happen you know i'm probably going to get you know destroyed but to be honest at the same time playing a guy that high it takes some of the pressure off too because you're not expected to win you're not even expected to draw. I mean, there's only one result that's expected, and being black 
you know, in the game, it's like, well, okay, I guess I can just kind of play because there's no pressure on me to, to hold up to any expectations, even if I lose. I'm not, I'm not, no one's going to think like, oh, geez, my, I can't believe Michael lost to Union, <laughs> right. right? It's like, it's just one of those things that uh, I think for me, at least psychologically, playing the top players is actually something I, I actually enjoy doing just because it takes the pressure off of having to perform like with the results, like I need to get the win or I need to get the draw. No longer is it thinking about the results, just thinking about let's just play, let's just play a game of chess and figure out what happens, me versus him. He's probably good, but you know what? I mean, if we just play him versus me and he beats me, that's fine, fair and square. He's a very good chess player. No one's going to think any different of me. Um, and so I think that was a very good psychological way to, to view the game. So the game started, of course, he I think he had a little jet lag. I mean, he's from China and he was playing in the U.S. for, I think it was one of his first tournaments in the U.S. I think he'd only played two or three beforehand. And so... I thought I could say since he was a little bit tired, but he's still playing fine. But he did make a mistake in the middle game that allowed me to make the position kind of unclear. And um, luck, and unfortunately for me, I made some mistakes myself. And at one point, he actually offered me a draw. He pushed his he was white, and he pushed his pawn at h6. Uh, he played h6 check where I had like a king on g7 and the h7, g6, f7 structure and offered a draw. Now, normally when a, when a, when a person pushes their pawn at h6, it's not a good sign, especially if you don't have your dark squared bishop uh, to cover those weak squares. But the fact that he had offered me a draw kind of shocked me because I was thinking, here's this guy who is one of the top players in the world. I'm just a FIDE master, and he's offering me a draw with the white pieces. Something is going on. He must not really like his position very much. And so I decided, you know what? I'm just going to play it out. I'm going to see what happens. It doesn't seem like he's very comfortable. And, you know, when I offer draws, I, I offer draws usually when I'm not comfortable with the position. And so I thought there's no way that a Super Grandmaster would offer a draw to someone as low as me without some trepidation about his position. So I decided I'll play on. And I think the position, it actually shocked both me when I did it. Like, when I played on, I, I was a little shocked. I was like, oh, why didn't I take the draw? <laughs> you fool! Right. Uh, but at the same time, I think it really shocked him. I think he expected, you no, know, here's this 2400 FM. I just offered him a draw. There's no way. No way he doesn't take it. I'm, I'm one of the top players in the world. And I decided, just I'll just play him like a human being. It's like, I know he's one of the best players in the world, but just for that moment to make that decision, I'd say I'm treating like a regular human who is not comfortable with the position, and so we'll play on. And it also uh, helped me because he, I think he might have got a little mad. And so when we played on, he ah. had a chance to go for a repetition. He actually like had a repetition at hand, uh, but he didn't go for it. He tried to play on for the win. And, you know, it caused me, it was a pretty interesting position, and uh, he had a couple ways to draw, but I think he was so focused on trying to beat me at that point that I think he was kind of overlooked all these draws to try to find the win. Unfortunately for him, no such win existed in the position, so he ended up trying to have to hold a worse end game. And uh, unfortunately, I think he also got kind of low on time. It was it was one of the longest games of the of the round, and I I felt that you know what. I'm up a pawn in the sun game. I was going to keep playing, keep playing, and see what happens. And eventually I managed to create a mating net around his king, after which he did resign. And so 
60 move game against super GM that, uh, that went my way. Um, yeah, it was definitely something I was not expecting. And, uh, I got a lot of, uh, a lot of people were watching that game and it was something that it, it it's not very often you get to play a super grandmaster first of all. And so the fact that I even got to play Yu Yang Yi was quite the experience, but the fact that, you know, I get to play him and go for the win and then eventually did win, that's even rarer. So I I think I just try to make the most of my opportunities in the game. Just play regular chess. Don't worry about the result. If I, I think if I'd been more worried about the result, I, I would have taken the draw, no questions asked. I mean, it was unclear when he offered the draw anyway. But I decided, no, I'm going to play the song and just see what happens. And so that, that attitude allowed me to get some of these, get this fantastic result. Yeah, and it's a great lesson in sort of chess psychology. I mean, it's it's impressive that that even when you were eighteen or how eighteen or nineteen, however old you mm-hmm. were during mm-hmm. that game, that that you had the perspective, sort of poker player mentality. That hold on, if he's offering a draw here, he he doesn't think he's better. Um, mm-hmm. And and just for listeners, again, I'll try to link to the game. Although I have to say, Michael, I watched your YouTube video and then I tried to look for the game on chessgames.com and didn't see it. Um, so yeah, I think the game is on Chess Tempo. I believe they okay. have it on that database. But yeah, like if you just search it up, I also was unable to find it. I'm not sure. Maybe if uh, he asked the database to hide it or something, but uh, yeah, <laughs> that's uh, funny. And I'll check Chessbase as well. I mean, we'll yeah. we'll get the game out there for sure. Obviously, you're not hiding it, being that there's a YouTube video on it and being that it's a a crowning achievement um but yeah i mean getting getting back to the psychology it's it shows it's it's really impressive i mean it shows a a great deal of confidence for a a young fm to uh to to have the presence to sort of uh look through the situation and and it was not it it was not a playing for two results type position it was a like what Mm -hmm. the hell is going on here type position yes yes so yeah it's uh congratulations and you mentioned in that video you've played a couple other super gms I have. So who uh, else? So I played Luke McShane when he was about 2690, and I know he's been a Super GM before, and that was actually the first Super GM I ever played. Uh, and in fact, similarly, I got like a good position versus him, but I think I did get kind of too um, involved with the details of the result, and so with a better position, I kind of just quickly panicked and collapsed, and and it was, I mean, again, he was the top seed of the event that that, that of the tournament I was playing in, but still it was like, geez, you know, I could have, I had a good position, you know, like I was doing very well. And then I just allowed him to get a free point. I've also played, um, uh, Santosh Gujarati Vidit from India. Oh yeah. yeah. Another super grandmaster. Yeah, he's I played. Been, on, been on this show. Super nice guy. Yeah, no, we had a very, uh, very uh, nice postmortem, even despite losing to him. It was a very interesting game and he was giving me a lot of ideas and uh, and yeah, I was I was I was very impressed by the way that he played and um, and though like I think I actually did have a draw at one point, you know. Despite that, it's like these super grandmasters, they're they're something else when they're on their form. Yeah. So I got to play I got to play Vidit, and then I believe the only other one I got to play was Zoltan Almasi. So. And you won that Zolt- one, right? I did win that one. That was actually for Grandmaster Norm as well. Um, I tend to make my Grandmaster Norm super high caliber, very <laughs> scary. Yeah. Yeah, you don't want the yeah. haters to be uh, casting doubt on the norms. So. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, 
the reason why I, I and most of those games actually, both Vidit and Almasi, they actually came when I played in the Isle of Man uh, International in 2017. And I'll mention what I'll mention about some of those Europe tournaments is, gosh, the the caliber of the players that go there on average is far different from a lot of the U.S. tournaments. In the U.S., usually your top seed will be about 2650, 2670 if you're lucky. Maybe 2700. You might get a guy like Lequang Liam, for example, to play in an event in the U.S. But very rarely do you have a tournament in the U.S. where you have the top 10 seeds are all super grandmasters. The next 20 are all 2650-plus grandmasters. And as a 2499 international master at that tournament, I barely made the top half of the of the tournament. So that was something where I was I was shocked to be in such an event where I actually played up, I think six times. I played six grand masters, and almost every time they were at least 2600. And so that's that was gave me a very good experience to play these super grand masters, and also just grand masters who were playing chess professionally. Um, and so. What I like to say to people if they're thinking about trying to go for norms is the U.S. is a very hard country to get norms in just because it's it's most people there are usually just as hungry for the norms as you are. And so the games will be very, very difficult. And the schedules is also the schedule usually is also very grueling, whereas in Europe you play usually it's once a day and you get a lot more uh, chances to play those top caliber grandmasters and so um if anybody out there is always thinking about trying to go for gm norms i would recommend going to europe despite the fact that i got two of my norms in the u.s but i'll say those were not easy yeah i mean we're lucky to have charlotte and st louis hosting a few more of these norm events now but i know that historically europe has been the place to go and certainly uh per capita even though the u.s is ascendant uh it's hard to compete with um the, the sort of concentrated chess power that Europe has. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned, um, I was uh, creeping on your Facebook page in uh, preparation for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> that, it's, I was like, uh-oh. Yeah. Well, I, I, luckily it seems to be all chess. You, uh, you, um, you're on your best behavior there. So, but I, but I saw that you mentioned meeting a couple of your chess heroes in Isle of Man. So, uh, so and and you had a picture of yourself with Magnus. So what what was the what were the experiences away from the board like uh, at that tournament? Uh, so yeah, that was that was a very interesting experience in general. I never. I remember I actually showed up to the tournament. They were having the opening ceremony, and some of my roommates were thinking, "Ah, eh, why would we go to the opening ceremony? You know, it's just them drawing the lots." And I was thinking, but it's not just people drawing lots. It's Magnus Carlsen. It's Vichy Anand, it's Vladimir Kramnik, Fabi Caruana. They're the one drawing the odds. And it was like the first time I'd ever seen any of them face-to-face. So I was, was like, I got to go to this. Um, I got to go to this opening ceremony. And so that was the first time where I got to see the top 10 seeds lined up. And man, I was like, man, I've seen so many games of these guys in print. Right. Whereas they just play phenomenal chess. And here they are just in the flesh, just looking like normal human beings, just having a good time, <laughs> you know, and. Just picking lots and you know talking to each other, joking. And I thought, wow, that's that's pretty neat. You know that you can see their their fire on the chessboard, but off the chessboard, a lot of these guys they're they're somewhat social. Some, of course, more than others, but um, but they're you know at the at the at the open ceremony, I could see that. 
I also uh, I took a risk at one point during the tournament. I think it was round seven or something. I saw uh, uh, Vichy Anand, former world champion Vichy Anand, just kind of walk by. He had just finished a tough game of his. And uh, I'd actually met uh, Mr. Anand at a camp in California, in Los Angeles, about seven years ago. Uh, there's a organization called Metropolitan Chess that unfortunately now I don't think they they're not really doing that much anymore for chess. I think I think the owner maybe moved on to something else. But um, back in that in those days, they were hosting uh, huge internationals. They had they've had Anand, Aronian, and Wesley So come to camps to teach. Wow! And I just happened to be at the ones where I got to meet both. I got to meet Wesley So, and I got to meet. Uh, 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 Anand, and so I I went up to him, you know, after the round and said, "Hey, Mr. Nanda, I don't know if you remember me. I was one of the kids that was at the L.A. camp, and um, and he was very cordial and friendly. He said, hello, you know, yes, I remember. How are you? I'd actually drawn Anand a couple of times in the simuls as well. Oh, cool. So I think that might have made a, a, a maybe he remembered me more from that too, but." Uh, you know, just I just had a pleasant two minute, three minute conversation with him just about my goals, where I was going, and also just about him a little bit. And I thought, wow, that's awesome. I just, I just talked to one of the just f- four years ago. This guy was the world champion, and he's still one of the top players in the world. And I just talked to him like he's just another guy. And so, in the closing ceremony, um, you know, there's all these pictures being taken and the speeches and all that, and. It seems so formal, and I'd always seen press conferences of the guys doing it. But then what you never see is that after the press conference, all, all of the guys, they just go back to playing chess, but this time with, like, beers in their hand. Right. So that was something I, I didn't know. So there's, like, on one side of the room, there's Nakamura, who was playing, I believe it was Lawrence Trent, with some time odds. I think it was, like, four minutes to 45 seconds. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah, unbelievable. Uh, and on the other side, you could see some of the Norwegian guys playing Bug House. And I thought, what the heck? These guys play Bug House? <laughs> right. and, uh, and there's like Nihal Sarin and Praganandha, two of the youngest Indian prodigies. They're just playing Bullet. And I'm just like, wow. Like, even after the tournament's over, they're still all just very interested in chess. And now they're just having fun. They're drinking. They're having a good time. During the tournament, they're all competitors. But here, you know, they act a lot like, you know, just people who despite being rivals they share a love for the game of chess and i think that really inspired me was to see even these guys at the top levels despite what i i feel like is immense preparation that they have to do for every game and every tournament that they play they're still enjoying the game and still finding ways to try to uh, enjoy the game and so that gave me you know some courage to go up to magnus carlson i went up to him after the ceremony had ended he was watching, of course, his Norwegian uh, Norwegian buddies, and I just I just kind of first said, "Magnus, congratulations." And then I'll be honest, I kind of I became a little bit of a fanboy. I, uh, after that, he also said congratulations to me for getting the Grandmaster Norm, and I just went, "Uh, can I take a picture?" You know, it's just <laughs> one of those. It was an awkward conversation stopper. I think Magnus, in a way, was trying to just like have an interesting conversation, but then I was just like, "Sorry, I mean, yeah, <laughs> this you got to do it, Carlson. <laughs> yeah, I need a picture." And so he was like, okay, sure. And we took the picture. And that's what you see on Facebook was that picture. And, 
and and uh, then you know we shook hands and I went off and I was like I went back to like some of my American American uh, buddies I'm like guys I just did you see that I just I took a picture with the world champion and they're like yeah we saw you know um, <laughs> the stars are just like us but yeah but I mean it, I was, sorry, yeah go ahead. No, no, that, that's exactly oh, right. But I was going to say, I mean, of course, a lot of people listening would would feel that way, especially now that you have the GM title. They they see you at a tournament and they they feel the same way. So I mean, uh, and it's it's you know, and it's notable that that both Anand and Carlson, at least, they they knew who you were. Um, so so that that speaks volumes about about what you've excuse me about what you've achieved. Yeah, I. Yeah, it was actually it was pretty uh, touching. Just uh, especially, uh, I think Carlson he knew because I'd gone up and I'd actually taken my Grandmaster Norm, and so he knew I just won the award. But Anon was, yeah, that was pretty touching. That he remembered the camp, and then he remembered. I'm sure there were many kids who took pictures with him. That was one of the main, you know, events of that camp. And then here's the one who who drew him in the simul, or whatever. And so maybe that maybe left an impression on him. So yeah, I'm, like you say. Um, these guys, uh, they they did remember me, despite me even back then just being maybe a master or an expert or something. So that was really something. That was something special. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the stories about Anand are that he remembers everything. So I guess not not so surprising that uh, that even even a camp many years ago, he's going to remember the details. Yeah. Um. So you mentioned uh, these guys inspiring you, and and in uh, the sort of uh, the Facebook note that I mentioned earlier, you you. Mm-hmm. Gave a shout out to your former coach uh, Armin Armbatsumian. I mm-hmm. hope I said his name like somewhat resembling the correct way, but uh, I mean, well-known uh, Southern California trainer. Uh, yes. And so I was curious. You you mentioned he helped you in difficult times. So I was curious what 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 were the difficult times for you in in your chess career? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. One that I hate to revisit, but one that. Uh, it actually it did really change how I view chess. So I'll say the first the first big kind of dark age for me was I reached expert at age eleven, and when I was you know eleven, I thought I was going to just become a master straight away. I was improving rapidly. Armin was my coach then, and I was having good tournament for good tournament. But um, then I hit a little snag in, t- in the late. Latter end of 2009, I went to a couple international tournaments. I did very poorly. Um, and in general, even back in the U.S., I was starting to do poorly for about eight months or so. And I wasn't, I didn't know what had happened. I thought I was, I was this 2100, and all of a sudden I'd lost 100 points and was having very average results. But my coach, Armin, uh, he told me to stick through it, that despite the fact that maybe my results weren't quite there, I was still learning still growing uh, and that this is just a this is just a little plateau for now that but if I just kept on working hard that I would eventually go past I also had some I had some very um, intense conversations with my parents too because man sometimes when when you play chess you're just not doing well you just think this game I just not I'm just no good at it you know I just I'm never gonna get better I, I can't win such and such game and uh, I do bad at every tournament. What's the point? And so these are the kind of thoughts that were going through my mind. Um, but I just kept on sulking through for a little bit because it was a lot of, it was very hard to play and study. And then in 2010, 
I went to Vegas for the National Open, and that was actually when I had a breakthrough, uh, at least for that first dark age. I managed to win the tournament, um, the under-2200 section, and all of a sudden, I, I think that one result caused me to, all my confidence was just like, okay, that's right. I can still play chess well. I just need to make sure everything's in gear. I need the confidence back and not to be worried too much about the results, all this stuff psychologically. Get a little so money that for was, that too, right? I did. I did. I won one of my biggest paychecks. I won $3,000 for that as a 11 year old. I believe I was, I was 12 years old at that time. But uh, yeah, so that was something that I was like, gee, that was awesome. Um, but that didn't mean that was the end of it. I had another, in high school, especially a dark age, I think for two or three years, I didn't cross 2,400 USCF. I was kind of stuck at the 2,300 range. And part of it was that, you know, high school, you're doing a lot of work there, and I wasn't studying as much as I should have. But then again, uh, my coach and my parents, they, they pushed me to continue playing. Uh, and just that eventually things will, they'll, they will get better as long as I put in the work that's the first thing you got to do is you got to put in the work. You got to go to the terms. You got to play. I mean, if you do those three, eventually things will hopefully turn around. And so, in a couple, after two years of kind of meandering around the 2300s, I did have some good tournaments and eventually crossed 2400. I made my first I am norm. And once I made that, I thought, okay, I think I can keep going because here's, here's like a benchmark where I made my first I am norm. Now I think I could set a new goal of becoming an international master new. And then after that new goal, becoming a grandmaster and so on. And so I think the main thing about those dark periods was that, um, despite not having the best results, I was still practicing. I was still learning and I was still trying to have a genuine interest in the game, doing everything that the guys would come before me told me to do because they, they're experts in the game. And I realize now that their encouragement, it meant a lot to me then. And now where I'm at, I just realize I couldn't have done it without, you know, the support of people like that to who just pushed me along and let me know that there is a long-term perspective to this, that just a couple bad months or even a bad year doesn't mean that you're not going to improve a chest. So That's great advice. And I'm sure to a lot of listeners, like the the rating plateaus that you described sound kind of like first world problems, you know, like getting (laughs) stuck at at 2400 or getting stuck trying to break through 2400 and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But but I think that the lessons that you're describing are applicable to anyone. And I know we have um, a lot of adult listeners who... You know, I, I mean, myself included, who probably will never see 2100, but the lessons of uh, knowing that there's going to be uh, good periods and bad periods um, definitely uh, apply to everyone. Um, yeah. So so speaking of chess improvement, so what what has been uh, what have been the most effective learning tools for you, uh, mm-hmm. whether it be books or, or online training or formative uh, lessons you've gotten over the years? Mm-hmm. Sure. So. When I was a younger uh, kid, uh, just starting out chess, there were a couple of things that I loved to do. Number one was uh, reading books. And one series that really stuck out to me was Yasser, Grandmaster Yasser Sarawan's Winning Chess series. There were seven books in that series. And as a young kid, I really liked the way he approached chess and, like, just to explain the game and in a way it just kind of made it fun i would you had this one book that's called winning chess brilliancies 
and he goes through almost every move, having a note by each and every move from uh, all these great players. It could be world champions. It could be uh, some grandmasters playing. But to me, it just fostered a love for the games. Like, wow, this is what can happen if you like you keep sticking with chess, and you can play some of these brilliancies. So that that chess series, especially when I was a you know, starting out was very helpful. So do you remember approximately what rating you were? I think um, I started reading these at age seven, and I didn't even start playing USCF tournaments until I was age eight. But I think, I don't think I stopped reading them until maybe I was nine and a half, ten, when I reached maybe 1,700. Okay, wow. Because at that point, uh, I realized that despite, you know, the awesome games and whatever, I knew them all by heart for one, so I wasn't very helpful, you know. Like I, I already knew it all, so I'd read it, and go, yeah, I already knew that. But um, there were also a lot of other books out there that maybe were more applicable to my level then. So that was something I did. The other thing I did as a uh, starting out was that I played online chess almost incessantly, nonstop. I just, I would just go online after school. I'd come home from school. I had, I had an ICC account. My dad had created it for me. It's uh, my ICC account is Michael Q to D five. My chess.com is Michael Q to D five. My Yahoo is Michael. Q. Like it's just like this thing that. And here's the history of how that uh, name came to be. When I was seven years old, my dad just had a simple question: Michael, where's your favorite square to move the queen? <laughs> and as a seven year old, I just said D five. And so all of a sudden, Michael Q to D5. That's what it means. Queen to D5. Nice. The handle was born. And so, you know, that was the history of that. And I would just go online after school. I would play for hours, literally hours. I wouldn't stop. I'd play the, they used to have the two 12, two minute, 12 second increment time controls. And I would play uh, game after game in that time control. And I, I have some of those games still saved in my archive. And let me tell you, those games were not good quality at all. <laughs> right. Terrible quality. I'm looking at it, it's like, what was I thinking? You know, now, of course, like, even when I'm 17, I'm think, what am I thinking? But, like, back then, it was just it was a blunder after blunder after blunder by each side. Hanging piece here and hanging piece there. But um, despite all that, I think I just, I just really loved playing the game. And was it and mostly so, Blitz? It was mostly blitz. And were you a, were you reviewing? Excuse me, reviewing the games or just plowing game to game? Um, I think there were a couple games where I'd go back and review them. But to be honest, as a seven year old, you're not really. It's hard to think long term as a seven year old. Yeah, so. no, I mean, I'm asking mostly as a coach's perspective. I know that yeah. you weren't like you probably weren't like super regimented at that age. But I always wonder, just as a coach, like if the kids love chess, which is the most important thing, and right. they're they're playing, that's obviously good. But on the other hand, it's like how hard should I be pushing them to be doing tactics instead? You know. Yeah, I will say that at that at that point in my life, my first coach, uh, his name is Fide Master Takashi Iwamoto. He was part of this organization called Academic Chess that, I, in addition to these online blitz tournaments, I'd also get to play uh, Friday night tournaments uh, with other kids around my age. It wasn't USCF rated, but they did use like a rating system. And so this organization, I played that also in second grade as well. And so at least at the beginning, I think that's what really helped me was just playing chess with kids online, basically whenever I could, to be honest. I felt like whenever I had free time as a kid, I'd be the first thing I want to do would go on ICC, play some blitz. I didn't care if I won, lost, drew, whatever. I just want to play some chess. 
Um, so that really helped me at the beginning. Later on, I'd say when after once we reached you know 1700 class B, class A, that's when I really started to focus on. I need to get my tactics up. I need to get my openings up. All this defense, whatever. And so I uh, I did actually. I saw that there's a note that um, another grandmaster recommended this program called CT Art. Yeah, Mauricio Flores. Yeah, and I also say like him. I was I did those. Uh, a lot when I got to the class B, class A level. Uh, that, I started to do those quite a bit. And so those were very helpful for at least getting my um, pattern recognition up for the t- types of tactics that you see in regular chess. Um, and chess.com, I don't think, was really big back then. So those, these were the kind of programs you got to use. Um, but then um, when I finally got to get Coach Armin Ambartsumian, once he finally became my coach, we started having face-to-face lessons once a week. And I'll say that was uh, that was actually very helpful in that it gave me no excuses to, um, to not put my best effort in because my dad would, would drive me to Long Beach, which is about a 40-minute drive from where I live, to meet with a coach for an hour and a half. And so if I don't put in my best, uh, I'm not going to be going to lessons very long. Right. So... Uh, that gave me some, I think, gave some motivation to really focus on on what he was trying to teach me, um, and so that really helped me when I was, as you know, struggling as an expert or as a as a master to just to go to these things and have an hour and a half just to discuss chess and do these puzzles, and um, that was very effective. And then, of course, we talked about this a little bit at the beginning was that once I got to college, the training partners to me that was the biggest thing that that really helped my game just because it kept my interest in the game very high. It, it exposed me to people around my, my level that were just as interested in chess as I, as I was and had their own strengths and weaknesses, and now all of a sudden I could banter back and forth with them. And so it just it depends on the level. I think at different levels, different things work. So I would, yeah, so it was a lot. I know I said a lot about all the things that, that really helped me. but No, that's um, great, and a lot of it um... – you know, a lot of it is stuff that's often recommended, which I think is good because uh, it's um, it shows that there is a clear path, especially stuff like finding training partners. I mean, that's something that's kind of easy to overlook because chess can be such a solitary game. But yeah, but I mean, it, it helps to have someone hold you accountable and someone to bounce ideas off of. Yeah. Um, so you, you also mentioned in the, the Facebook post that when you went to college, you factored your goal of becoming a grandmaster as a, as a big component. And Absolutely. So, how did what's the connection between your going to to Brigham Young and and your your then goal of becoming a grandmaster? So, yeah, I again, these are things that on social media it's hard to put this all out there because then your post would be way too long and no one would read it. But I'll say that for for college, uh, I had heard a lot of I wouldn't call them horror stories, but kind of. You always, I, I don't know if you've heard these stories before, but um, basically there's a guy who's very good at chess. He did well in his younger years, but once he gets to college, he goes to – maybe he'll go to a really good college, but he won't be able to pursue chess very much. And in a couple of years, he pretty much just gives up chess completely. Are you thinking – I've definitely heard that story, but are you thinking of someone in particular or you're just saying that's a common narrative? Um, I mean I'll say that – a lot of the 
people in my Southern California community, my chess community, that were a little bit older than I was and were former students of Armin's. Um, I noticed that a lot of them had kind of trailed off chess as soon as they maybe reached even high school or, or something where they really focused on school. And so, um, and I, of course, heard about this in college. So hearing that from people that I knew personally, that I looked up to as a kid, uh, kind of shocked me. I thought, wow, here's this kid, here's this uh, student or this person that I knew as a young younger man, as a younger as a younger boy, that I was thinking this guy is one of the best players in this in this area. And now he quit chess because he's going to college. I thought, well, geez, that seems kind of a waste. Um, to to I mean, it's okay you're going to go for a career and all that, but at the same time, I thought chess to me at least meant more than something that I just give up in college. So. I got accepted to a couple very prestigious universities, like say UC Berkeley was one, UCLA, uh, Cornell, um, and the UCs but, are no joke when you live in California, <laughs> right? And so these are these are places that I was very heavily considering because they have very good programs. Pretty much everyone in my school was trying to get into these similar school similar schools as well, but. I really had this goal that I wanted to make grandmaster, especially before I started you know, working full time, because I knew as soon as I do that, that it's going to be a lot, lot harder to uh, to pursue that goal. And so, what was good about BYU was number one is that it was pretty cheap. Uh, BYU, uh, especially if you're part of the the Mormon faith, they have a pretty good discount uh, for students who decide to go there. And so that was something that really helped me. And also, BYU isn't the most prestigious university. It's still very good, but it's not as you're not like quite worked to the brim like you maybe are at Cornell or UC Berkeley. Those guys, those schools really work you out. Whereas at BYU, it's the atmosphere is they, they take a little easier, but it's still very, very competitive programs. So I thought, okay, here's a school where I could go. Uh, for a huge fraction of the cost that I would go to a normal university and also university where I won't have to like be so focused on school as much while I'm there. And uh, those two things together made me think, okay, now I got some, then I could save some money just for chess and hopefully pursue that and be able to study chess while in school. And so that event, that was, those were kind of the two main factors that made me decide to go to Brigham Young. Uh, university in Provo. Um, so, and it worked out, you know. <laughs> yeah, I that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It, it, it worked out, but, uh, you know, there are definitely times while I was there where I thought, man, maybe Utah is not the place for me. I mean, I'm a guy from Southern California, and the culture in Utah is a lot different. So, it, I never fully, you know, a cult or assimilated into their, their culture. So, there are times where I thought, man, I'm not having the greatest time. But at least I got to play chess, you know, once every month, once every two months. And that, to me, was enough. And you got a great um, job, too. So yeah, it worked it's out in all, in all regards. Did you have any um, thoughts of going to one of the chess colleges? Um, not particularly, actually. I think back, you know, if I really want to pursue the Grandmaster title, you would think, obviously, the first thing you do is consider a chess school. Uh, but I... Despite having this goal of becoming a grandmaster, I still did really want to balance my school and chess, you know, goals. And so I thought with the chess schools, um, 
they might have mandatory trainings. I've heard that sometimes you need to, there's certain regimens that they, they require of their students. And um, they also require you to play a lot of tournaments, maybe more than, than I would have, you know, by myself decided to play. And so I heard some stuff like that and decided I'm not quite sure I want to go that route just because maybe there's too much emphasis on the, on the chess. I think I, I like the more independent route, which is like I play chess when I think I should. I play the tournaments I want to play. I room with the people I want to room, you know, that kind of stuff. And uh, so that, to me, just made more sense than going to a chess school. And I know they have great reputations, uh, absolutely. And they've made their fair share of international masters to grandmasters and all that stuff. I think I just was also wanting to make sure that I didn't just go full chess. That was not a goal of mine when I started college. Was that I never really wanted to be a professional chess player um, until maybe I figure out that maybe I don't want to work full time. Right. Maybe then I'll think about it. Yeah. But that, that's not something that I was really pursuing with with chess. I just it's just something that I just love to do um, and something that I had fun doing and. So to be honest, I wasn't. Um, it's almost like when you play professionally, it's there is a certain fear that perhaps that kind of love, that unadulterated love for chess, kind of gets tainted with the fact that now you're trying to play for money and and uh, and so that might make people start to hate chess. And I've heard actually a lot of the students at these uh, universities, these chess universities starting to hate chess because they're, they're just, they have to play it all the time, even when they don't want to. Right. I think that was kind of the problem for me that I was ex- anticipating was that, you know, I still love to play, but I don't want to have to play like even, you know, there'll be days where I don't want to play uh, and I don't want to have to be forced to play. So uh, that also factored in. So, yeah, huh. well, I'd good, say good. that was one of the main reasons. Sounded like you had pretty good perspective for, for an 18 year old um, in terms of uh, knowing what you wanted and, and, getting it uh so so congratulations on that so so michael one more topic if you're up for it sure uh greg greg shahadi of course won't bother to listen to this but somehow he was <laughs> he would still send his henchmen after me if we didn't talk about the pro chess league so uh, so we, we got to talk some san diego surfers what's going on this year uh so uh first i'll give a little background about the surfers in general is that uh it, two years ago when the league started San Diego was um, was a new team. Of course, everyone was new then, but we had just kind of come over from the U.S. Chess League where the SoCal community was it was actually kind of fractured at that point. You know, the problem with the U.S. Chess League, I think, was that one of the requirements is that everyone had to play at the same location. And, you know, that had caused a lot of – because SoCal is a very big area, and so they, it really limited the players that could actually play in the Chess League. But what, what we liked about the Pro Chess League is you could play wherever you are. And so for the first two years, we did, we did very well. We got to the playoffs uh, both of our first years. In fact, we won the Pacific Division in 2018. And the first year, we were the only team to go five wins, zero losses. We had a perfect record after five weeks. Uh, and so this is kind of like the legacy that we've had. This year, um, this year I think what kind of happened is that, to be honest, a lot of our team – we had some very good uh, performances in the last two years where we had some players who really overperformed. Uh, and this year, unfortunately we have one player, Joshua Shang, who's been playing pretty good uh, rapid chess, but 
uh, for the rest of the team, me included, uh, no one has very, has really impressed thus far. So it's not like we're playing way below our rating. And so, like, for me, for instance, I think my performance is probably after the, um, what, would, what was it, the their Super Saturday version, uh, Battle Royale. Right. I didn't have a very good Battle Royale. Um, and so maybe my performance is a little bit worse, but uh, it's, I think, uh, even our top board, Drea, it's, it, it's, we're performing exactly where we are, kind of. But unfortunately for this uh, this year, no team is is bad, especially in our division. Our division is is full of, of very strong teams who almost all of them have some super grandmaster somewhere. And to be honest, we actually got hit with uh, in our first two weeks. We got hit with two teams that used like a triple grandmaster lineup. Uh, so like we played Seattle week one, where they had Ikaru, they had Mikalevsky, they had Georgi Mark Margovashvili. And those guys are all very solid grandmasters, especially Karu, one of the best. And, you know, sometimes things just don't go your way. So right now, uh, San Diego Surfers, we're not, our results aren't too great, but we are still very optimistic that in a couple of weeks we'll be able to figure out, you know, the, the winning lineup, you know. Uh, I'll say as my participation for the Pro Chess League, um, I don't think I've, I'll be honest, the Pro Chess League, I feel a lot of pressure when I'm playing for my yeah, team. I don't because, blame you, yeah. Uh, it feels like I, not only am I playing for myself, I'm trying to play for my team. And so there's this added pressure, like, man, now I need to perform well. Like, if I don't win or if I don't draw, whatever, then my team is gonna, it's not going to do well. And unfortunately, just for us, the uh, usually in the past couple of years, maybe one teammate would, wouldn't do so well, but then another one would pick up the slack, you know? Unfortunately, that, that hasn't quite happened this year where it seems like everyone is kind of performing on av- performing averagely. It's kind of the idea there. This was happening. So, um, But to be honest, I think the, the, I, I really shouldn't take this Pro Chess League as seriously as that. Um, the Pro Chess League is what I think I should, I should view it as. It's more of just like a... It's a fun alternative to classical chess. Classical chess, you know, you're really trying to make all the correct moves. It's not a spectator sport. Moves are slow. Games take a long time, right? And and so when I think the pro chess league is, it's just it's a way to get the fans involved, to get you know chess spectators really loving to watch the game. And and honestly, I I think I should have more of this perspective that you know what pro chess league is just kind of something I do to have a good time spend time with my teammates to prepare and just to play some fun chess and uh, rapid, you know, playing people all around the world. I mean, yeah. how often do I get to play, you know, Hikaru Nakamura or maybe I actually got a rematch Yu Yang Yi. Unfortunately, game didn't go quite so well, but I'll, <laughs> I'll say it's rapid. So I'm going to, I'm going to say right, it doesn't yeah. count. Uh, <laughs> and then, then here in the pro chess league, I mean, you get to play all kinds of high caliber players uh, for a team. And so, Despite, you know, maybe the surfer is not having the best year, I think all of us are still really enjoying the experience. And, um, I mean, it's awesome that that's a thing like this exists where we can just take all these players from uh, – because a lot of uh, the players in, of the San Diego surfers, they don't live in SoCal anymore. Uh, a lot of them have moved out because of college. Me, I, you know, I had college and now I'll have the job. Uh, but we all have some tie to the Southern California area. 
And so the, those, and that I think really helps foster in, you know, the SoCal chess community, just we're all in it together and hopefully uh, things will go better the second half of the season. So uh, because we've, we've done pretty well the first, uh, first two years. So I think this year is more just sometimes things just don't go your way, to be honest. And like I say, with the G grandmaster norm, I had many, uh, many games where, you know, things just, I, I press and press and press and, Chess is a hard game. It just yeah. really, it really is a hard game. Uh, and there is so, an element of luck, I would say. I mean, the, yeah. I mean, yeah. sometimes you'll 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 get lucky with maybe your opponent makes a mistake or they play into something that you studied before. It's that like those kind of things. So um, with the pro, it's it's a tough league, but um, I think honestly, I might personally, I need to take more of a approach that it's just kind of a fun way to play chess. More yeah, than anything else sense. with the team. It's not like like even the Battle Royale. $500, I think, was the top prize uh, for the Battle Royale this last week if you won first. But, you know, it's it's not like it's, you're there for the money. The money is not the main thing driving people to pro chess league. At least I wouldn't hope. Yeah, I, I would think it's more just here's a chance to, you know, be with the team of people hopefully around your area that you know well and uh, share some background with. And it's just time for you guys to enjoy playing and and just it's a it's a it's a team sport. Um, and so, just because I don't do well doesn't mean like the team you know despises me or anything like that, right? And so I think that's kind of the perspective I need more to focus on because, yeah, I, I like I said, if if not, it's there's that extra pressure to perform, and man, does it does it take a toll uh, to to try to perform at some level. Yeah, so. it's, yeah, it's not worth it if you're going to beat yourself up like that. Yeah, but sure. uh, yeah, Tatiev and uh, Melikachian have been amongst my favorite guests, so I'm definitely rooting for you guys to turn it around. Uh, oh. so good people on that team. Well, we'll do our best. Uh, and if things don't work out, things don't work out. But hey, we're gonna we're gonna give it our all. Cool. Glad to hear it. All right. Well, well, Michael, is there anything else we need to discuss before I let you uh, let you go? Um. People know how to contact you, uh, Queen Queen to D five. I'll I'll put uh, your chess dot com profile up there. Is there anything else I should link to? Um. Yeah, the Michael Q to D five. Right, that's going to be my. That's both my Yahoo and Gmail account. If they want to send me an email, that's my chess dot com account. Um. So those are kind of the probably. If you, I get a lot of messages from people on chess dot com. You know, they're saying. Say hey, you want to play me? And I go well, <laughs> <laughs> uh, not really, but uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but like, I get a lot of messages there. I would say the best way though is is via email. To be honest, that's I check that most regularly, and um, usually I those aren't the places where people just say just play me. So yeah, uh, I think that's okay. the best form for that. So listeners, uh, keep keep it substantive, but uh, but if you need to reach him, <laughs> you can. Yeah. And just remember, you guys, it's, if you're, you know, having a tough time, I mean, there's several things you can do and that it gets better. I, I think that's uh, one of the main things about my story is that my role, the grandmaster was not all rainbows and sunshine far from it. There are so many times where I wanted to quit. I was hating myself. I, my confidence was low, but you got to just say, you know what things it's, it's just life. Life can be tough sometimes. And, You'll have your ups and downs, but you got to remember that 
there will be enough at some point. That's a, that's great perspective, and I think a, a good note to end on. So, so Michael, thank you so much. This has been yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. That includes my producer, Matthew Passy, and Geert Vandervelt for supplying the intro music. I also want to thank all of you who have helped spread the word about the show. That includes people who tell your friends and write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or other platforms. Every little bit helps. But most of all, I want to thank the people who provide financial support. As you guys have heard me say, I spend a lot of time on this show, about five hours a week, and even though it's my favorite aspect of the work that I do, I would not be able to do all this without financial support. So most of all, I want to thank my Patreon and PayPal perpetual partners. They are Chessable.com, Ace Vallega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Benjamin Handelman, Brian Castro of BetterChessTraining.com, Bill Moran, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, I am Carlos Perdomo of ChessAtlanta.com, Chad Hilton, Chad Oliver, Chris Balcom, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Woods, I am Christoph Zalicki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, Daniel Vine-E, David Cramley, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Alec Donnie Ariel. Frank Tortoris, MD, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, I am Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, GM Jakob Ogar, James Bonastia, Jason Woolham, Jeff Anderson, Jennifer Valens of OffTheRook.com, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jernigan, WGM Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Kare Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Bajowski, Lucio Casada Silva, Matthew Passi, Martin Habich, Matthew Tedesco, The Mysterious Moonmaster 9000, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paolo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Quality Chess Books, Randall Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Rob Lazorchek of DiplomatChess.com, Robert Steiner, Ryan Stone, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Steiner Lima, The Law Offices of Stuart Katz, WGM Tatia Vabrahamian, Thomas Casper, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Vrancouz, FM Zhao Cheng and Zhivko Stoyanov. Wow, the list is getting long. Let's keep getting it longer, guys. Thanks a lot, and I'll catch you all next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.